Well, please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 57 this morning. Psalm chapter 57. It is good to be together as a church family. I know our hearts uh, feel the heaviness of what we as a nation, the news that we have uh, been grappling with. I appreciate Jason's prayer this morning for the community in Uvalde. And whatever angst and anxieties, whatever grief and sorrows that our hearts possess this morning, I hope that we um, can find comfort and encouragement to know that uh, God's Word is what brings life to His church. God's Word is what breathes faith into His people. And so, um, before we jump into this text this morning, I wanted just to give an update on what you, what we as a church family can expect together uh, in regards to the preaching ministry now that we've prayerfully sent our lead pastor into his next ministry endeavor. Uh, this morning, we'll begin walking through more of the psalm. That's why I had you turn to Psalm 57. Uh, having a what we call a summer in the psalms is ordinarily how we as a church family have spent our times together in the summer. Uh, myself, along with some of the other elders from our elder team, along with uh, an occasional guest, will be preaching this summer. Some will preach from the Psalms. Others will choose a different text. But rest assured, whether we are in the Psalms or some other passage in the Scriptures, I want to encourage us to put our dependence and expectations upon God and His Word and His Spirit. At Highlands, we believe that it is God's Word that brings life to His church. We're, we are a people who must live by faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word, the Scripture says. So God's Word, bind with His Spirit, is what is going to change us step by step as we await the return of our King. Uh, and it's good for us to remember um, all the time, but maybe particularly on this Sunday where our hearts feel the heaviness of, uh, of the tragedy of loss. It's good for us to remember that God has spoken. God has spoken. Um, maybe we've let the significance of that pass over us just through you know, being familiar with it. God has spoken to us. We can open up God's Word and know that we are reading the words of God. This is really remarkable. It's, it's spectacular. Anytime you want to hear God's words, you can open your Scriptures or turn on your scriptures, however you, however you have them, and read, and these are the words of God. We gather together on the Lord's Day. We give our time and attention to God's word because this is the primary means whereby we encounter God and where we hear God speak through the scriptures. There's nothing else like the Bible. So here I just want to encourage us as a church family not to neglect or to become familiar with the scriptures so that we neglect and wander away from them. There's nothing else like the Bible, nothing. So this morning we have the privilege of together looking into Psalm 57 together. Now the title line of this psalm, you'll notice there, there's in your Bibles, you likely are going to see the chapter number 57. And then above that, or maybe just before verse one, you'll see a couple of lines of explanation. Those title lines, you'll notice there, are attributed that this psalm was written during a time when David was, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Now, there's a couple of times that David finds himself in a cave during this period of his life. A couple of those times, David had the chance to actually take Saul's life. He didn't. Uh, there is another occasion that is recorded where David finds himself hiding in a cave from Saul 
And one of those occasions is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 22. Now, because this might be the occasion that set up this, the writing of this psalm, which, by the way, if you turn back to Psalm 56, you notice there that it's attributed to a time when David was in, by Philistines seized um, by, in Gath. All of these events are kind of stacked together in the life of David. So there's this flurry of psalms that are, that are recorded for us that came from the pen of David under inspiration by the Spirit as a result of this time of real trouble in David's life. Which, by the way, if you're in a time of real trouble... Be encouraged. God's people have lived through times of trouble for millennia. And we have for us, recorded here, a a kind of a guide, a roadmap for how we as God's people can live in times of trouble. There's a a fellow that lived the Christian life before us. His name is David. He recorded some of the results of that, living through times of trouble, his encounters with God, his living by faith. And this is going to be life-giving for us today. In 1 Samuel 21... This is a historical record of what was happening in David's life. He had just fled from Saul with a tearful goodbye to his best friend, Jonathan, who was, by the way, the son of Saul, King Saul. He runs from this place to a place in Nob where he begs the Himalek, the priest, for anything to help him. He's a fugitive. He has nothing with him. He has no weapon. He has no food. All that Ahimelech the priest had was the, uh, the holy bread for worship, and he says, this is all I have. David takes that, which, by the way, gives you an evidence of how dire his situation was. It wasn't like, um, well, it was very dire. He asked for a weapon. The only thing that Ahimelech has around is the, is the sword of Goliath, and David says, I know the sword. Give it to me. So David takes the sword, takes the bread. He continues on his run. He's running from Saul, and where David runs, from, runs to is an area of Philistine, the area of Gath, which, by the way, Goliath was the former champion of Gath. So David is literally running from the frying pan into the fire. Okay? Word spreads that he is there. This is how desperate his situation is, right? He's trying to get away from Saul, and he runs into Gath. Word spreads of his arrival, right? And he's arrested. He's brought before the king of Gath, or Achish, the king of Gath, And, I mean, here they have the champion that had killed Goliath, their champion, who, by the way, David has the sword of Goliath on him. And they bring him before the king of Achish. There's this prize, right? I'm sure that the guys that that arrested him brought him in thought they were going to be commended for this. And David does something even more desperate. He feigns to be insane. He pretends to be insane. Some of you have read this account, right? He, uh, he starts walking around randomly. He starts letting spittle and drool run out of his mouth over his beard. Achish sees this guy and says, I've got enough crazy people in my kingdom. I don't need another one. And he sends him off. He says, get this guy out of here. And David continues on the run. David exits there. He runs away from, from that being incarcerated there. And he finds himself in what is called a cave of Adullam. This is where he finds himself. And it is very likely that after the, those occasions in his life, that series of events, that David finds himself in this cave. He survived this long, and he starts penning these words. He is in a time of great distress, a time of great trouble. And he writes these words. And so what we have here in Psalm 57 is a roadmap, an example of how God's people can live through and endure troubling times. How are we to respond in times of trouble? How are we to function and respond as a people of faith. Psalm 57 is a bit of a roadmap to show us how we can do that. This psalm can be organized into two main sections. Verses 1 through 5 are a section about prayer, and verses 6 through 11 are a section about praise. 
And we're going to use that simple organization to help us walk through this psalm together. How should God's people respond to troubling times? Number one, respond to troubling times with prayer. I know this is very simple, but when we're in times of trouble, we need simple. Respond to troubling times with prayer. Take a look at verse 1 of Psalm 57. And notice how direct David is. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. There are times in life when all we can do is cry out to God for mercy. For ourselves or for those in whom we, we, we know are in troubling times. Mercy is evoking the spirit of pity and compassion on someone in desperate need. Mercy is, is reaching down into the helpless state of another and, and serving and helping. This is what David needs. Do you? Psalm 57 then is for you. Notice that David is not just asking God for things with no interest in God himself. David is leaning into his relationship with God. He is seeking to find his protection in God, his refuge in the shadow of your wings. Verse 1. Which, by the way, this picture of finding refuge in the shadow of your wings calls to mind this idea of a mother bird protecting her young under, under her wings. Which, imagine, right? Helpless, blind hatchlings being protected from harm and finding refuge under their mother's wings. This is something we don't see often. Right, um, but in the time when this psalm was written, um, there was nothing like Tyson Foods. Okay, uh, people didn't go to the market and just buy, you know, boneless, skinless chicken. They didn't do that. Um, so uh, birds running around was something common, and this would have been a very common sight in this in this day and age, where you would see this this mother hen kind of kind of protecting her young as she as she moved them around. And David is calling to mind this common occasion that he would see over and over again with this metaphor, this, this analogy of, of looking at this is what he needs from God. It's used elsewhere in Scripture, in Psalm 17, in Psalm 63, in Psalm 36. It's even describing in Ruth the protection of God over what was happening in Ruth's life. But remember here, David is in a cave. And yet David's greatest sense of protection comes not through a stone fortress or, or hiding. His greatest sense of protection comes with his confidence in God. Also remember that David writes about God's protection and refuge while he is in trouble. This perplexes our modern sensibilities. We like the idea of God being a refuge in that he keeps us from trouble. That's why he's a refuge. But David is writing this while he's in the middle of trouble. And yet David finds God to be his refuge. So it's important for us to realize that finding refuge in God does not mean that we're going to escape suffering and troubling times. It does not mean that. Instead, as this psalm shows, refuge in God happens while we are in the midst of trouble, while we're facing distressing times. And David finds his refuge in God. This is what is providing him enduring confidence, even in the face of all evidence to the contrary. I mean, here he is on the run. Which, by the way, David had the, the, the prophet of God assure him that you are going to be the next king of Israel. I mean, he had this promise of God, and it does not, I mean, all the evidence around him seems to be contrary to that promise of God. Have you lived through times like that? Where it seems like God's promises to you seem, and the evidence around you seems contrary to everything that God has said to you. Psalm 57 is for us. Notice also, by the way, David's perspective on trouble. This is just kind of a quick passing comment. But at the end of verse 1, when he says, um, 
My soul takes, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. For God's people, the worst trouble we can face will eventually be replaced and be turned into eternal joy. I marvel at David's perspective here. He had this eye of faith that looked forward. And this reality has encouraged God's people through the ages. This reality that we as God's people will not always and only face trouble. But there is a day coming when there will be no trouble. This is the truth that has encouraged God's people through the ages and it's why the Apostle Paul was able to write in 2 Corinthians 4. He says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. How is that possible? For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, a question here is, why does David lean into God as his refuge and protection when all circumstances around him seem to prove the contrary? Why is he doing this? Well, I believe the answer is found in verse 2 of Psalm 57. And I think, in my opinion, this verse contains some of the richest and most comforting theological truth in this entire psalm, in my opinion. Look at verse 2. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. David is using a combination of terms to address God in verse 2. And we probably read past things like this really quick because we are too often, with our modern minds, are too often looking at Scripture as kind of to be kind of a chicken soup for the soul tidbit. Those are the kind of things that we're looking for too often. And we kind of blast right by these these. Uh, connections of words to describe and address God in His majesty. And that's what David is doing in verse 2. God is a, he's addressing God with terms of majesty and grandeur. Verse 2, this, this God most high, God is literally Elohim, Elion, El. I mean, he's, he's doing this rapid-fire um, response or, or descriptions of who God is in majesty and honor and power. He's crying out to God for mercy and refuge a God who is mighty and omnipotent and supreme, the one who fulfills his purpose for him. Look at the end of verse 2. The God who fulfills his purpose for me. It doesn't look like God is doing that. I mean, here he is in a cave as a fugitive, running from Saul. Everywhere he turns, he's being mistreated and horrible things seem to happen. In fact, later on, what happens is Saul hears where David has been and David, Saul sends a detachment of troops to where David has been and they massacre the people that so-called helped David. But look at the end of verse 2. He is assured that it is God who fulfills his purpose for me. David is assured that God has a purpose for him. He's confident. He rests everything in his soul upon that reality, upon that truth. And he knows that God's purpose will be fulfilled none other than by God himself. Which, by the way, that is an encouragement. The destiny, if I can use that term, right, the destiny of David is not entirely up to him. It's not like some destiny he has to achieve, which, by the way, is the things that make Americans, you know, kind of think, hey, we're going to seize the day and do this in our own power. David is fully assured that God has a purpose for him and God himself will fulfill it, even though everything around him seems contrary to that. But notice that the specific purpose of God for David is not described or clarified here in Psalm 57. And that's how it is so often, isn't it? Life happens. Bad news strikes. Terrifying things. Troubling times come upon us. And what we try to do is we try to cast our minds around to look for some shred of explanation about why this is happening. And often God doesn't give us any explanation. 
Remember Job? But what God does give us in His Word and through the spectacular saving acts of Jesus is the assurance that He is a God who fulfills His purpose for us. This is not just true for David, but it's true for all of God's people. God has a purpose for you. And He is the one who will fulfill it. And that should give our hearts confidence as we face times of trouble. Rest in that. Rejoice in that. Take comfort in that. Remind yourself of that. Let's be reminding each other of that too as we face times of trouble. There are times where we will doubt that reality because all the circumstances around us seem contrary to that. And we will need to hear each other, reassure one another. Let's remember this as a church family. The Apostle Paul wrote about God's purposes for his people like this in Philippians chapter 1, which, by the way, there's some analogies there. David's in a cave hiding. Paul is in prison writing. Philippians chapter 1, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And Paul, again in prison, assured of God's purpose for him, was able to write this in Philippians 4, later in that letter, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Which, by the way, that anthem there in Philippians 4 sounds very similar to the anthem that David repeats in Psalm 57 when he, when he transitions between one stanza to the next, the end of verse, uh, verse 5 and then again in verse 11. God be exalted. And Jesus lived his life fully assured of this same truth. When, when he would say that uh, when he was getting ready for, uh, to, to worship, he would say, you go up to the feast in John 7. He says, I'm not going up there for my time has not, not yet fully come. That doesn't mean that he just didn't have any room in his schedule. It doesn't like Jesus looked at his day book and said, ah, I just don't have time to do this, guys. You go ahead. I, I'm, I'm, I'm booked. What Jesus was saying there was that he knew that God the Father had a specific plan in, for his life and he was living in accordance with that plan. He had confidence in that. This is why when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he did his cross work, his great saving acts, this is why Jesus was able to say, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus uttered those words in the time of great trouble. This is why Jesus was he able to say then at the end of his life, Jesus called out with a loud voice in Luke 23, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus modeled a confidence in God who would fulfill his purpose in his life. That truth, that God has a purpose and he will fulfill it for you, might not comfort some of us. Maybe some of you are terrified by that idea. Maybe some of you feel kind of like God is this aloof, omnipotent God who is allowing things to happen in our life and, and you're terrified with the idea of God having a purpose for you that he will fulfill. Friends, you shouldn't be terrified. Keep reading. Look at verse, verse 3 of Psalm 57. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah, which we think is a term described to just pause and reflect on that. God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. So friends, we need to connect verse 2 and 3 together. David is assured that God is a God who has a purpose whom he, well, that he will himself fulfill, but this God whom he is trusting in is a God of action, a God who saves. 
David is assured that those who are causing the injustices that he is experiencing will one day be judged by God. They will be held accountable by God. And meanwhile, God sends steadfast love and faithfulness. So friends, in other words, the God who fulfills his purpose for us is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Which isn't sentimentalism. It's not sentimentalism. This, is, this, this word of steadfast love that's there in verse 3 is a specific Hebrew term to describe the fierce, loving loyalty of God. A God who makes a promise and then keeps it even when it costs him everything. That's what David is encouraged by. Which, By the way, friends, the most spectacular demonstration of, of this, of God's steadfast love and faithfulness, is the gospel, is the crosswork of Jesus. It's the reason why we are gathered together and why we have a reason to sing even when terrible things are happening in us and around us. God fulfills his purpose for us eternally through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And friends, sometimes we, we, we miss this. We kind of live our lives with this compartmentalized perspective as if we have a life here on earth and we have a life further on in eternity. And there's like this, this compartmentalization between the two. Like, God, I get it that you've got an eternal purpose for me, but... I've got purposes right now that seem to be thwarted and aren't coming to pass. Friends, the Scriptures never push those apart. Taking, when Jesus took on Himself the wrath of God for our sin, not His, when He gave Himself as a sacrifice for us, that's the steadfast love of God. And that is true for you right now, even in your time of trouble. And it matters. If your time of trouble were to take you to the worst, to where your life was lost, or the life of those you loved was lost, which, by the way, is not a theory for some in our nation, in our world today. God's steadfast love and faithfulness reaches even beyond the grave through the cross work and the great saving acts of Christ. Do you know God's steadfast love like that? You see, a prosperity gospel would say God's steadfast love and faithfulness is going to make you rich and going to make you wealthy and going to make you famous, going to make you successful. It's going to help your entrepreneurial spirit flourish. Friends, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus coming into our cesspool of sin and delivering us from slavery and bondage to sin so that the worst trouble is solved. We have forgiveness of our sin. We have an encounter with God. We now are at peace with God in that encounter. We have an eternal hope. Do you know Jesus like that? Is he your Lord and Savior? This is what was encouraging David in Psalm 57. Now, of course, David didn't have the, he didn't know Jesus, he didn't know that name, he didn't know all of that, but we, in modern day, in modern day Christians, look back through the lens of God's redemptive plan and we see the fulfillment of it. Even if we find ourselves surrounded by enemies and adversaries who are determined to destroy and harm us in Christ, we can still be assured of the steadfast love of God. Friends, I'd like to encourage us not to grow bored with the gospel of Jesus. And it happens to us, right? It's not because the gospel is boring. It's because our hearts are so cold. Our heads are so hard. Our affections get so distracted. Look at verse 5. God in his majesty, his supreme power is what preoccupies David. This anthem is repeated twice in the psalm, which, by the way, verse 4 Um, I'm just going to comment here. Um, My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. I wonder if if this is an expression of his confidence in God that even in the middle of everything horrible around him, he's able to lie down and rest. Why? Because God is his refuge. 
But then verse 5, this anthem is repeated twice in the psalm. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is astonishing to me, convicting. David, in all of his hardship and suffering, what he wants most is the exaltation of God. That's what he wants most. That convicts me. Because when I'm in times of trouble and adversity and hardship, what I want is deliverance most. And what David is doing here, it's not like he's asking God for specific things. He's just he's uttering praise to God. God, here's what's happening. I cry out to you, my refuge. You're my strength. I'm going to trust in your steadfast love and faithfulness. Oh, by the way, God, I want you to be exalted. This is a remarkable expression of humility and submission to God. How could he respond like this? I think the answer is God's grace. And the reason I say that is because the Apostle Peter taught this. In 1 Peter 5, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When What Peter writes to his readers in the New Testament is really kind of an echo of what we see David writing here in Psalm 57. And David humbles himself under God's mighty hand He wants God's exaltation, God's glory to be manifested even in and through his times of trouble. But what does it look like to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? Well, according to to the Apostle Peter, it means we cast all our anxieties upon God. That's what it means. Well, that sounds very similar to Psalm 57 where David cries out, God, have mercy upon me. Rescue me. This is what David is doing here in Psalm 57. Do you? And if not... Will you? This isn't meant to be a club over your head like shame on you for not crying out to God. No, this is an invitation, friends. This is an invitation that God is saying, cast your cares upon me because he cares for you. He cares for you. You're like, but there's trouble in my life. There's discouragement. There's distress. There's calamity. There's hardship. Death and destruction. Threats. It was too for David as well. And God says, cast those anxieties upon me because I care for you. God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Have you been crying out to God and does it seem like things are getting worse or at least not getting better? David lived through times like that. I mean, when he finished this prayer, when he finished penning these words, it's not like some sort of magical moment happened. And, you know, like those movie moments, right? I, I, I know, I'm a nerd. I think of like Lord of the Rings moments where the, the evil troops are going to overcome the, the forces of good and then Gandalf appears over the, mount, over the top of the hill and the light shines out and they all come down and they're rescued. I mean, David is still in the cave. He's still being hunted. We live through times like that, right? Where it doesn't seem like anything's getting better or things seem to be getting worse. Christian friend, keep living by faith just like David did before us. God's wisdom and power are incomprehensible to us. Verse 2, let me remind you of that again. This is why I think it's really the theological anchor of the psalm. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. God has called us to live by faith, which means that even as we go through times of trouble, we don't understand what's happening or why it's happening or what God is doing, but we can be assured that God is a God who fulfills his purpose. So then how are we to respond respond in troubling times? Pray. Number two, praise. 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 This is verses 6 through 11. I love the gritty realism of this section. Look at verse 6. I mean, he just talks about verse 5, God be glorified. And then verse 6, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. Those are like terms of dark and depression, okay? 
They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Verse 7, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. David was genuinely vexed. I hope we, re- we don't just kind of say, David, you're just being dramatic. I mean, you've, you've had people like that, right? Maybe you've been those people, right? You're just being melodramatic. You're just kind of being overboard here, David. It's really not that bad. It was bad. And by the way, David is a real guy who lived a real life. This isn't just biblical myth, okay? This has actually happened. Have you felt, have you had your soul vexed? Has your soul been bowed down? Maybe you feel like that right now. The threats that we face in this life are real. Look at verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. David is reaffirming his vow of confidence and trusting God. He's basically kind of preaching a little sermon to himself there in those few words. My heart is steadfast. He's reminding himself where, in what is the object of his faith. What is he depending upon? Everything around him is threatening and uncertain and the only place his heart is going to find solid ground is in God. There is something interesting happening in the language in verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, he describes that they are setting a net for my steps. That term, set a net, is the same word in verse 7 that says, my heart is steadfast, O God. And one scholar is just kind of making the curious comment that he wonders if, if David is saying something like this, that it might mean that while his enemies have given themselves to careful and deliberate preparations, crafting this clever snare to catch him, right? What David is doing is he is giving equal deliberation and careful planning to fix his mind and his heart on God. And I, I think that there's probably some truth in that, in the language there. That David is saying, hey, there's people that are working overtime to, to catch me. And what David is doing is he is working overtime to put his confidence and his mind upon God. Friends, there are times in life where we must do that. Here's the sad reality of our modern age. Oftentimes we're so busy and so distracted and we say yes so much that we kind of push our encounter, our relationship with God to the fringes of our life. And then calamity strikes and we don't know how to respond. We don't have faith to fall back into and upon Psalm 57 is preparing us for that. The result of having a heart so fiercely fixed or so steadfast on God is a response of praise. Verses 7, the end of verse 7 and verse 9, when he talks about how he's going to praise God. These are words of active praise. David is going to sing. He's going to make melody. How can he do this while he's in a cave being hunted? Read verse 2 and 3 again. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me, Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. In verse 8, it seems that David's heart is so steadfast in God that instead of the dawn awakening him, when he says, Awake my glory, awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. It's as if in these poetic terms, his heart is so steadfast upon God that it's not the dawn that's going to awake him. Which, by the way, have you, have you ever finished a day like that? Like, you just want to sleep so you can forget the troubles in your life. And then you wake up and it's like, oh, the troubles are still there. What's happening here is David is saying his confidence in God is actually turned all that upside down. 
or maybe right side up, however you look at it, to where it's not like he's just kind of just regretting, like, oh, another day is starting, here we go again. But it's as if his heart is so full of confidence in the Lord that he says, I'm going to actually be up before the dawn. My praise in God is going to awake the dawn. I'm going to actually be kind of a participant in calling in this next day. This is remarkable. Now, some of you might be scoffing at this. Some of you might be saying, yeah, good for David. Fine, I'm glad that worked out for him. But you don't know the story in my life. Friends, this is who God is. This is what he can do. This is how his spirit uses his word and the, re- and the expression of who God is to reassure and strengthen us as God's people to live by faith. What reasons does David have for this kind of praise? Remember, he's in a cave. Look at verse 10. He comes back to this phrase again and again. I know if you're like, come on, man, preach something new. Hey, this is the Bible. This is what God wants for us. This is what's going to bring, give us life. Okay, look at verse 10. Here's the reason why he's able to do this. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. I wonder, I'm, I, I, I just want to marvel at the eye of faith that David has here. I wonder when we are in troubling times if we can see by faith, but because that's what's happening here. Verse 10 is an expression of pure faith. When he says, your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, have you ever done one of those exercises where you write down a list of what you're thankful for? You ever done that? If you haven't, you should. It's kind of commonly done around Thanksgiving time. Um, and we all have different dispositions, right? Some of us are kind of really adept at just seeing the cup is always half full. It's always half full. And some of us are adept at seeing why the cup is not half full, why it's mostly empty. And we all know who we are. We don't always know who we are, but we kind of know one another in those kind of ways. Sometimes we find that helpful. Sometimes we find that very abrasive, right? Which is, by the way, one of the ways that we as a church family display God's glory. When we can all be together and it's not just friction and abrasiveness, it's actually we are banded together in this great enterprise of displaying God's glory. How could he do this? Well, verse 10 is an expression of faith. Your steadfast love is great to the heavens. What are the reasons that he's going to put down on why he can praise God? Well, he has a roof over his head. I don't know. Maybe the roof leaks. It's a cave. Caves are often damp and dark, right? It wasn't like there was power there. It was lit up. It was easy. I mean, I'm not being a little facetious here, but what are the reasons? And maybe you've lived in moments like that. And again, I want to make sure that we're careful, that we're not weaponizing God's word in each other's lives, in, in moments of grief and heartbreak and, 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 and calamity, right? To where you just, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not advocating here is when somebody is in heartbreak, did you just look them in the eye and say, come on, man, just believe God. You got this. That's not what's happening here. But what David is looking through is he's looking past his physical circumstance. He's looking past all the reasons that seem contrary to the promises of God. I mean, God says he's a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And it's like, God, where is it? Where is it? He's looking past those things into the things that will last beyond this life. When we are in troubling times, can we see the faithfulness of God? Notice how David ends this meditation. He repeats his anthem about God's exaltation and glory. In verse 11, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. 
How could he do it? How in the middle of troubling times could he sing praise and give thanks and end again with, an expre- with this preoccupation with God's glory? He's in a cave. He's being hunted. He's on the run as a fugitive. How can we live like this? Well, friends, it's, it's simple yet profound. We must remember that God is the exalted one. That is, that is the reality. God is not exalted and then not exalted and then exalted and then not exalted. It has nothing to do with the news cycle. And I know I'm, I'm, on, I'm on very thin ice here, okay, with our hearts, because, but I just want us to be reassured that even when the news cycle has the worst news possible, that it's not like God is no longer exalted. God is a God of supreme power and exaltation and glory. There are things happening in this universe that we don't even know about. And I say universe, I mean things that are billions of light years away that we have even yet to discover that God knows because he made it. He put it there. And yet at the same time, God is a God who is very, very personally aware of our suffering and our sorrow. Because David, one guy on little planet Earth in the middle of this galaxy, huge, is crying out to God for mercy and finding his refuge in God. And what he has here is the eye of faith, knowing that God is exalted. He is the one who is in glory over all. Over all. And you're like, explain that to me, Sean. I can't. I don't, ha- I don't know how to explain all of the intricacies of that. Those are God-sized complexities. How God is weaving and working and using all of this to fulfill, verse 2, his purposes for us, even through troubling times. I don't know how all that happens. I can't do that. We try to figure this out and then we start doubting God. Friends, this is why the Bible says that God is incomprehensible. There are things about God that we can understand, that we can know in, in some ways, but at the same time, God is incomprehensible. He is transcendent. And Psalm 57 is crashing both of those realities upon us at the same time. He's a God who we can cry out for refuge and mercy while we're in the cave. At the same time, he's a God of majesty and power and might who rules over not just the cave, but the universe. And his glory is over it all. God alone is supreme, not our trouble. That's the eye of faith that David sees here. God alone is supreme, not his trouble. We forget that. There are times in life where our trouble seems supreme. And for good reason it feels like that. Because there's, trouble is real. Heartbreak is real. Nevertheless, we can be assured that God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. The problem is that we doubt this when bad things happen to us. We doubt God's glory. We doubt God's supremacy when we live through troubling times. And Psalm 57 is here as a safety net to reassure us from a friend who lived the Christian faith millennia before us. God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He has a purpose He will fulfill for you. Remember, God is not limited by our lifespan. He's not limited by 24 hours in a day. He doesn't have to take naps. His steadfast love and faithfulness are not limited or vexed by stock markets or world markets or weather patterns or world leaders or supreme courts or militaries. It's been said like this, compared to what God is and his majesty and glory, all the evil and suffering in the world is like a pinprick. And I know that might be offensive to some of us. But I do believe it's true. This is how glorious and great our God is. Friends, I'm not diminishing your sorrow and hardship, your trouble and calamity. I'm not. 
What I'm trying to do is elevate our appreciation of the glory and majesty and grandeur of God who is over your trouble and who will fulfill his purpose for you even in and through that trouble. In conclusion, here's some biblical kind of cross-referencing to see how this is weaved together in other places in Scripture. In Jeremiah 31, God is making, makes a spectacular promise to ancient Israel. Israel had been exiled, had been scattered among the nations. God's people had faced enormous difficulty and suffering and trouble, enormous loss of life through, the, through that be taking place. Yet God promises that he will ransom his people back to himself. Even though they had rejected him, he would buy them back. And so in Jeremiah 31, 13, when that day comes, here's what it says, the words of God through the prophet, then shall the young woman rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Notice there, it doesn't say that God will exchange their sorrow with joy. He doesn't say their sorrow will stop and then joy will begin. He says he will turn their sorrow into joy. Now, I'm gonna, we take God's word literally here, okay? And I think that's what's happening here in the prophet. Because, by the way, Jesus says these same words. He uses the same words in John chapter 16. Jesus says the same thing. This is when his disciples are wrestling with, he's saying, I'm going to leave you, you can't follow me. I'm going to go somewhere, you can't follow. Like, where are you going? And he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. There's that phrase again. Friends, as we wrestle with the problem of evil as Christians, which, by the way, every worldview wrestles with that problem, I believe that Christians have the best, the, the, the best way to wrestle with that problem. We wrestle with it in this way, that God, we have a God who is so supreme, so majestic, so exalted, right? Which is the theme that David keeps coming back to. That he is able to take our sorrow and he turns it into joy. And I know that may be offensive to some of our heartbreaks in here. Friends, I'm trying to put your hope in God, in a God like that. I'm not diminishing your sorrow heartbreak. I'm trying to put your hope in a God who is so powerful, so exalted, that he's able to take your sorrow and he turns that into joy. And that hasn't happened for most of us in this room yet. It hasn't happened. But friends, I promise you one day it will. It will. Remember Jesus. He went through the most troubling of times so we could find refuge in him. God took, the, Jesus' words were fulfilled, took the very thing, the very source of their sorrow, the disciples, and turned it into joy. He's risen. What do the Christians do now for millennia since that occasion? We gather on Easter Sunday and we, we, make, we make fools of ourselves in the world's eyes in praising God for that. If you were to have told the Apostle Peter or that, hey, as this was happening, guys, I know it looks bad, but one day Christians around the world are going to gather and celebrate this event. Well, I know, the, the cross work, but you see it's all wrapped up there, right? We're going to celebrate. They would have looked at us like we were idiots. Like, what do you mean? Jesus went through the worst of times so we can one day experience the best of times for all eternity. 
for all eternity. So what are we to do in troubling times? Pray. You have a God whom you can cast all your anxieties upon. Maybe, maybe some of you in here can't even pray. You're, you're so worn out with your trouble. Then, tell us. Tell your Christian friends. Tell this church family, those that you know in this church family, tell them so we can pray for you, even when you can't find the strength to pray. And friends, trust God that the day will come where you can praise. God is the one who is glorious over it all. And God has shown that he is glorious over all hardship through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Nothing, friends, nothing can separate God's people from the steadfast love and faithfulness of God.